0: This episode is a bit of a temporal throwback. It's the first interview I did for this project when I first found out I had received support from CBK Rotterdam. I was in Chicago visiting my family for a long time and the purpose of Unpacking Light as a research project was for me to develop my skills in interviewing, in having conversations that are recorded, in creating an archive of research through conversations. So this is my first interview. This interview is with Langston Alston, who is a painter, artist, muralist, who works in between Chicago and New Orleans. I know Langston because he is the partner of my sister. So interviewing him felt like a good first step for me It was interviewing someone I was familiar with. Speaking with Langston felt, in this way, safe. And I wanted to talk to him about a t-shirt that I bought in New Orleans before I met him, before he and my sister moved to New Orleans. Langston makes fantastic work that ranges from paintings to murals to videos to sketches to illustrations. His work can be seen publicly on walls in Chicago and New Orleans, also in books He makes exhibitions for galleries. He was recently included in an exhibition at the Contemporary Art Center in New Orleans with a huge banner work. He incorporates text and portraits in his imagery. And he's currently in residence at the Joan Mitchell Center in New Orleans. Langston makes work about the communities around him. He's a storyteller. His research practice is involved in thinking about where he is and with whom he shares his space with. I'm quite inspired by Langston's practice. And I have to say that this conversation isn't about Langston's practice. In retrospect, I wish it was. Maybe we can do another interview later, Langston. But this conversation had a intention. I had an idea of what this podcast would be. And I started recording thinking I knew where this conversation was going to go. I was wrong. And this episode took three months for me to digest and has turned into a bit of an annotation of what happened in this interview, mistakes I made, and hopefully some useful information, specifically to my majority white listeners, I'm assuming. So here's the recording, and heads up, I'll be interrupting it quite a bit.
1: Is it recording now?
0: Test it. Test? You got it.
1: Cool, how cool. (laughs) <laughs> but also, it doesn't,
0: only have to be it doesn't only have to be Langston. Also, we want to be honest about who's in the room now. True. So, we are in... I'm sitting in a living room in Champaign, Illinois, two and a half hours south of Chicago, with the Alston Yagels, who's a family of four, three of which are sitting with me right now. Langston. Hello. Aria Delanoche, my sister. Not an Alston Yagel not an Alston Yeagle. Marshall, What's up? and Nancy.
1: Good public radio voices all around.
0: <laughs> um, I'm sitting in a room with, as I said, my sister, Langston Alston, Langston's brother named Marshall, Langston's mother named Nancy Yagel. I thought being in a room full of people I know would make it easier, but I think being in a room full of people I knew made it harder to try to do something I've never done before. There's a lot of performance going on here and a lot of giggling. <laughs> we had Christmas dinner. It's January 21st, Merry Christmas everyone. <laughs> but it's the end of the night. I just wanted to bring out this garment. The reason why I wanted to talk to you, specifically Langston and Arya, I bought this shirt in New Orleans in 2013, which is now where you live. And I bought it with three friends of mine. At the time, we were taking yearly trips to commemorate a friend of mine. Just a little correction here. The trip was in 2015, not in 2013. And I bought it at a secondhand shop, like a variety shop, along with a painting that I still own. Have you seen this shirt? Can I see it? Mm -hmm. Okay. At this point, I'm showing them a t-shirt, and I'm going to try to describe it to you now. It is a Kelly Green cotton t-shirt. The cotton is worn threadbare, so you can sort of see through it. It's kind of a perfect vintage t-shirt. It's soft, and it has a decal on it that's plastic that has been cracked and shrunk clearly from repetitive washing and machine drying, so it puckers where the graphic is. The graphic itself looks like a combination of black screen print ink and red plastic decal. The red really pops against the green. And it's a square that's partitioned into three horizontal sections. The top is a red stripe, and it has the word Juneteenth on it in all caps, serif font. The middle stripe is black, and it has the cutout of silhouettes of two men's faces facing each other. The bottom has no background color, so it's green. And in a different typeface with a drop shadow, a Sam Serif typeface, it has the date 82. It has holes in it in the perfect places. It's soft. It's quite incredible, and I fell in love with it the minute I found it. Actually, my sister describes it pretty well. It's visually appealing. It's gorgeous. It's got the colors are nice. The font is great. It's graphically successful to me.
1: It's also a Juneteenth shirt, which is cool to me. Mm-hmm. In the 1982. I don't know. I, I 1982. 1982? That's just the year Yeah, I assume just the year they printed the shirt. Because Juneteenth was when they heard about no, the slaves getting freed. But what year was that? Was that like 1865, 64, no, 65? No, no. The no, war ended no. in 63, 65? Years. Oh. Uh, For people here in like Texas, Texas. and shit. Because that's where they heard last that they were free. So people were slaves. That's why it's that's why it's a holiday. Because they didn't find out on uh, like the Emancipation Proclamation. Because they didn't have like the radio. Yeah.
0: That part I didn't know.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like some years after the Emancipation Proclamation that slaves in the rest of the South discovered they were free.
0: For those who didn't catch that, we are talking about American history, specifically the Civil War era. And I wanted to take this opportunity to offer you a little slice of history from my country on the abolition of slavery. This might be informed by a history podcast that I'm listening to. I'm sure I won't be doing it justice, but here's what I have. So American President Abraham Lincoln announced on September 22nd, 1862, that on January 1st, 1863, that's a couple months later, quote, All persons held within any state in rebellion against the U.S. shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. However, it took not only the passage of the 13th Amendment of the American Constitution in January 1865, which is, as a reminder, and also for those of you who aren't Americans, is the abolition of slavery amendment, and the end of the Civil War in April of that same year, but also the slow ratification of the amendment until December 1865, that's a full year, to end the institution of African American slavery in the United States. So unlike how history is written, which is linear, progressive, and has logic, abolition was gradual and slow, even before national abolition of slavery that the 13th Amendment established. Technically, by 1805, all northern states in the country had abolished slavery in some way. Some abolished it outright, but others, like Pennsylvania, enacted sort of cruel, gradual emancipation that provided freedom for every slave born after its enactment which is essentially as slow as human generations are. In the 1840 nationwide census, hundreds of people were still listed as enslaved in the northern states. And as I researched a bit more about American abolition and how it took its time, I read about some legislative moments that proved abolition was not only a slow process, but sometimes a regressive one. I read about the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which is 11 years before the start of the Civil War that permitted slave owners from the South to reclaim possession of free northern African-Americans they claimed were escaped property. The law awarded $10 to the commissioner, the judge, if he directed the captive's return, and only $5 if he ordered their release, which is basically an open bribe for judicial backstepping of abolition, but the government called it the difference in cost of paperwork. I'm sharing this to show how slow abolition was even in the northern states where slavery was already abolished in antebellum period before the war uh, in times of peace. So you can imagine that when the Confederacy, which is the southern states who were fighting the Union, the northern states in the Civil War, surrendered on April 9th, 1865, the news of abolition spread very slowly in the southern states like Texas, Kentucky, Tennessee, Louisiana, where battles even continued after that surrender, and generals themselves only surrendered over a month after the official Confederacy's surrender. So if news to the literal generals was slow to arrive, or maybe slow for them to accept, it makes sense that most slaves in the South were still unaware of their freedom months after the official end of the war. This started to change, again slowly, after a general order called General Order No. 3 was issued by Union General General, Gordon Granger, on June 19th, 1865, and was read, I'm quoting Wikipedia here, by Granger's men, quote, marching through the streets of Galveston, uh, as well as other locations, including Union Army headquarters, the courthouse, and an African-American church, which is now called Reedy Chapel African Methodist Episcopal Church, which is in Galveston, Texas. Last year, on June 18th, 2020, so that's What is it? 2020, 1865. Shit, let's do the math. 155 years after the original issue, the American National Archives and Records Administration digitized and published the original handwritten letter, which I will read now in the style of a man marching through the streets of Galveston, Texas. General order number three. General order number three 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 so i took a bunch of takes of this and i realized that actually it's just not a useful text to make a joke out of but i'm gonna put a little street sound under it to imagine it being read while marching down the streets of galveston texas except now it is rotterdam the netherlands The people of Texas are informed that, in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. The freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts, and they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. By order of Major General Granger, F.W. Emery, Major A.A. A. General. Hmm. I don't like to read that. I don't like this last sentence. The freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present home and work for wages. There's something about this association with idleness and the goodness of hired labor and employer that totally masks the inevitable perpetuation of of labored bodies in the United States. There's a lot to unpack there, but I'm reading it to say that on June 19th, 1865, the day that this was read in all of those places in Texas is over two months after the formal end to the Civil War and over two years after President Lincoln's original issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation. So June 19th, the day that this order was announced, was deemed the holiday Juneteenth to celebrate the emancipation of slaves in the United States. It is the oldest celebration commemorating the end of slavery. I bought this shirt for a dollar. Uh And I bought it on a rack, pulled it out, saw the graphic, it was Juneteenth, don't know what Juneteenth is, was born in June, on June 17th. It was like, it's appropriate, 82, before I was born. Showed it to Tess and Stella and Zoe, the friends of mine that I was with. None of us knew what it was. We looked at it, and we did, we were like, we're in New Orleans. We looked at it, and we were like, three white girls being like, there are these two heads on it. And we were like, it could be governmental?
1: You didn't notice it had like a Pan-African flag on it?
0: No. Huh. No. Just
1: curious. I mean, this shape.
0: Green, yeah. black, and red. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nope. Bought it. Wore it in New Orleans and then, like, brought it home and was like, I should look it up and looked it up and then learned about Juneteenth in mm-hmm. 2015 and then cherished it by carrying it around with me all the way to Rotterdam, never wearing it again. How come you never wore it? Maybe I've worn it a couple times. Here's why, here's why I wanted to talk about it, because I am not from the South, and I've never lived in the South, and I bought the shirt on a vacation in New Orleans, not knowing what it was, and then when I found out the history of Juneteenth and how significant it was, which means that how significant it is that I didn't know about it, I felt like there was something I was missing in terms of me wearing it as a representation of the holiday.
1: Because you've never celebrated Juneteenth
0: nor did i know about it upon purchase upon acquisition of it like my intentions to in involve like invite it into my life was just material and aesthetic like in the fetish of a vintage t-shirt
1: mm-hmm.
0: should i repatriate it like send it back to the south
1: well i think i mean at the end of the day it's just an old t-shirt you know like juneteenth is a holiday that some people celebrate and it's an important date to remember in american history but you know like the thing you have is just an old t-shirt. It's not like people are, right. are clamoring it after it. it.
2: could have value uh, like, like, yeah, to somebody's somebody's like,
1: individual Juneteenth memories, like that could be somebody made that for their family Juneteenth party in 82. But they also gave it away because they didn't want it anymore. Right, right.
0: just like any other family <laughs> reunion shirt, whatever else, like that. Yeah. It's a piece of cotton okay here i am taking a big old deep breath to respond to marshall and langston i'm going to interrupt myself here because i really love this speculative trail they're following i love the logic that traces backwards from the moment of finding a shirt in the secondhand store speculating that the shirt has been passed on by a previous owner that some 1982 celebration of juneteenth was attended by a person who ended up wearing this shirt so much that it became threadbare and then decided to give it away. I think this is one of the first mistakes I made in this conversation. I wish I had stuck with this and shared the space with them to think through possible lineages or different stories of where this t-shirt may have come from. But the way I approached this interview gave little space to pursue this speculation. I can hear I have an agenda with this conversation, which I make clear just after that big breath I take but first I'm gonna give us a little break. I'm gonna play a track that my sister sent me. Um, I had asked her to record some radio from New Orleans, and she responded. Yes, I'm totally game. There's a really great radio station here that we love that sometimes plays jazz and sometimes plays all sorts of things. And so here is some music from New Orleans radio. Gonna put it in as a break and then we will come back to the end of that breath.
2: Folks always said booze was no good for me. Jesus always said
0: Here, I'm going to end this episode. I like to keep the episodes around 30 minutes. Feels like a big ask if I post something longer than that. So, part two of this episode will immediately follow. I'm not going to wait a couple days to post a second part or something. It's not about suspense, but it's more about respect for attention. One hour of your time is a lot. So, tune in immediately or a little later for part two of this episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm.